Please turn with me in your Bibles again to 2 Corinthians. Today we'll be starting chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5. We can't just jump into chapter 5 of this letter today without recognizing and remembering several of Paul's key points from chapter 4. Paul's text, of course, is a letter, and so there is a flow of ideas in this part of the letter that are connected to one another. First, the treasure of the gospel of the glory of Christ actually dwells in our hearts so that we can reflect his light into the darkness of the world that we live in, which is what we saw in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. This treasure then resides in us as in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So when we who are in Christ are afflicted or perplexed or persecuted or struck down, God's presence and power in us keeps us from being utterly crushed driven to despair, forsaken, or destroyed. If death comes, which it obviously will at some point, even then the light of the light, life of Christ in us will bear witness to his life and death for us. How? The way we go through such circumstances will be or should be very different from those who do not know Christ. And as we trust and look to Christ who walks with us through such hard things, that's where we learn the power of God. The second main idea we've seen so far is that we can live knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us also with him. And if we know this is true, we will proclaim the gospel of grace as we live. It is that simple. The third key point that Paul makes in the last half of chapter 4 ties everything together to get us ready for the first half of chapter 5. As we realize we are here to reflect his light and proclaim the gospel, knowing that we will be raised and be brought into his eternal presence, thirdly, we can learn not to lose heart as we agree and grow in a heart attitude that's disposed towards wanting Christ to be reflected and proclaimed in and through whatever life brings. That was a mouthful. But so are hard circumstances. And we need to understand God's purpose. We can tell when we're in the process of learning and applying these truths. Now, I put it like that because there is some truth to the fact that this is something that we never really completely learn. But 
we can grow in this so much that it becomes a habit. We can tell when we're in the process of learning and applying these truths when we realize we are thinking about the tough stuff we're going through in terms of being light momentary affliction that prepares us for the eternal weight of glory ahead instead of being something else to gripe about, get angry about, or just wilt under in despair. This is a learning process. It's not something we learn over here apart from the hard circumstances that are in here and that are affecting us. In other words, this is what Paul calls not looking to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the eternal things. So now, right now, if you agree with God's plan for your life to reflect Christ's glory to a dark world, you see, this is how Paul lays it out here to these Corinthians. If you agree with God's plan for your life and want to reflect God's glory to a dark world, and if you know and are certain about your future bodily resurrection, and so you share his gospel, and if you desire to learn how not to lose heart as you grow in wanting Christ to receive all the glory in all these circumstances, then you are ready to dive into the first half of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're not, you won't hear a word after this because you're still fighting the first part. Now, is the first part of this, the agreeing and knowing and desiring to learn, is that a one-time decision? Or do you have to keep making it? What do you think? You know, I think it's both. I think first, you need to understand this is how God works. And second, get real. Look around you. It's your own life at other people. This is the way it works. And the people that have grown the most are the people sometimes that have suffered the most and had to learn the hard way. But they get there because God loves us so much and his grace is so overwhelming to us that he will complete his purposes in us and get us to this posture. But folks, once in it, you know when you leave it because it hurts so much more than before. So the first half of chapter 5 here, Paul encourages his readers to better understand what their hope is for the future. There's no magic formula here. This is where our head and our heart needs to be. The plan is to go through the first half of this section this week and then the last half next week. So we'll do one through five verses uh, today and Lord willing, six through ten next week. They do go together. I'm going to read the first ten verses so we'll see where we are. 
If you're able, please stand as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For we know that if the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I think you'll agree there is a whole lot in these 10 verses. Much of it deals with our attitudes, where our hearts are, as it should. This is what God's Word does. It goes right to our hearts. You know, it's no accident when an important word appears several times in a passage. Three weeks ago, when we were in chapter 4, verse 13, verses uh, through verse 10 of chapter 5 today is the passage I'm talking about. It all flows for a reason. And that word is know. What should we know or count on? And why should you and I have hope for the future? Well, back in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Paul wrote this. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we can speak to others about the gospel of grace in Christ because we know and therefore are sure that we will be raised into the presence of Jesus forever and ever. I don't think this is emphasized enough. What do you think? This is the reason that we share. There's no fear here because we know something that's sure. And if we are afraid, we deal with it by speaking this truth to ourselves. In today's passage, verses 1 through 5, we read in verse 1 of chapter 5, For we know 
that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We can live in uncertain or dangerous times as Christians have throughout history with grace and peace. It is possible because we know that this life is not all there is. That there is an abode for us, eternal in the heavens to live in, and there's also a new body, a new heavenly dwelling we will put on. Now, we all realize that it's one thing to know it up here, and it's another thing to live this truth out. And this is much of our struggle. This is what one of the reasons is for us being a church body in Christ together is to encourage each other in this knowledge how to apply it, part of which we're doing a little bit today. In next week's passage, verses 6 through 10, just starting in, in verse 6 and reading 6 and 7, we read, So we are always of good courage. Why? We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith now, not by sight. And we need to deal with that. We will get there. Paul brings his encouragement full circle back to how we can be of good courage now and walk by genuine faith day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. While we wait confidently to be in Christ's physical presence in heaven. This does not mean that we negate the blessings of this life now. This means that we have a real biblical structure for looking at our lives now. But the question, you see, is not only if we know these key truths and therefore can be of good courage, it's really if we are willing to learn not to lose heart. Let's be honest. Some of us enjoy being miserable. And we love telling everybody about it. There are a few people like that around. Most of us aren't quite wired that way. But as we agree with and grow in a hard attitude disposed towards wanting Christ to be reflected and proclaimed in and through whatever life brings, that attitude will be mitigated. It should be. We can't just decide, I'm not going to be that way. Sometimes that helps for a while. This is a long-term answer that Paul is dealing with. If you want and desire this, to learn to not lose heart, then you will be crying out to God to walk with you through it. As I mentioned before, this is one of the main reasons for the book of Psalms. That's what's in it over and over and over and over again. So the question is, are you crying out for God to walk with you through whatever life is bringing to you right now? So that 
the light of Christ that is in you will shine in and before you and reflect him to other people? That's the question. Nobody's ever going to get this perfect. You can't do this alone. It's what the church is for. And I hope you're reading between the lines already and noticing that if you have no sure hope for your future in the Lord, your life can deteriorate so quickly into chaos and anger and despair, mainly because you're not accepting and believing and then applying what you should know is true both now and in the future. That God wants you to know from his word. The Corinthians were not the only church congregation needing to hear all this. One of the reasons I've liked this book so much, because it's just so blunt, as Paul shares his own personal experiences. This is experiences that are not unique to one or two people in this room, say. It's true for all of us to some degree at some point in our lives. So, you know, if we have any wisdom at all, we should all be saying, praise God, he's really described so much of what I have already experienced in this life, and I have blown it so many times, and I want to I learn this and not be afraid that he will lay on too much for you to handle. He always provides the grace, no matter how tough it may be, to see him walking with you through it. Now, as noted earlier, we see in the first verse of chapter 5, Paul's second use of the word know. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And you also know, especially you English majors over there, I'm trying to watch Blake's face to see. But anyway, um, you'll notice real off the bat that there's some mixed metaphors here in the first five verses. And they're there to cover the bases in explaining really how extraordinary our eternal existence will be. Why is that? Because this is what we need to know in order to look at what's going on right now with some kind of eternal perspective. Most of us are so nearsighted. All we can see is what's right here. And so we need help. Paul employs these mixed metaphors. He compares our physical bodies with a tent. And that's not for shape, it's for whether it lasts. Just thought I'd throw that in. This is a temporary dwelling place. A destroyed tent, which is what he says, refers to both the death and the end of the physical body and our entire existence on earth. The Christian's earthly home is changed into a house or a building, not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Remember at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, after he'd been betrayed by Judas Iscariot and arrested, he was on trial, 
He was accused of saying, it's recorded in Mark 14, I will destroy this temple that is made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And he, was, he said that when? After he cleansed the temple. And he's asked about it here in this trial. And that's referring to that first cleansing. John makes clear in his gospel in John 2 that Jesus was referring to his body there. Jesus made an analogy between a building, the temple, and a body. Now this means that the house not made with human hands could very well be the resurrection body which would fit what Jesus said here, here there in John 2. Paul's point is that every Christian knows this and counts on it being true. Do we? Then in verse 2, Paul continues by describing a groaning or a longing. And I'm, when I read this, I tried to glance up and everybody in here looked like they were groaning and longing. You, you were identifying with this. This is the human condition, but it's more than that. This is a groaning or longing to put on the heavenly dwelling. So there was a groaning or longing that made you groan so much that you want the heavenly version. Folks, this is not just for old people. You shouldn't have to wait till you're my age till you're going, oh, I guess I better think about this. To groan or sigh refers to the Christian's sense of frustration with the limitations and burdens of our mortality in this life. That is also combined with the knowledge that our destination is an eternal existence in the presence of Christ, complete with a resurrected body. In other words, Paul conveys his intense longing to do what? To check into that hotel. But he's perfectly fine with staying right here until God has accomplished his purposes through him. In verse 3 we read, If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Now this has caused a lot of debate. I'll try to explain this. Because some in Corinth may have adopted a, a popular worldview at that time in history in their culture that denied any future bodily resurrection. I don't know if you remember, we went over this when we started 1 Corinthians, and that was a long time ago. But it's a, it's a version of, of a particular idea that was very popular. Paul may be saying here that by putting it on, our future heavenly dwelling, we may not be found naked, or as he says in the, uh, the middle of verse 4, being unclothed versus future are further fully clothed. Does that make any sense? It's, it's the desire to be fully clothed with what God has for us in eternity. He could also be referring to something else that we may have always wondered about but never wanted to raise our hand. I don't even think Mike's asked this. Um, I may be wrong about that. 
tell me, Mike, if I am. But when he says naked in verse 3 and being unclothed in verse 4, because while a person is said in Scripture to be immediately in the presence of the Lord when they die, it also says our resurrection bodies are acquired when Christ returns and resurrects our bodies into eternal bodies like his. This may indicate what a lot of people call some kind of intermediate you know, state. We don't know for the Christian who dies before Christ returns. And that may be why Paul talks about this so much. Don't worry, these guys aren't going to be resurrected before you, that kind of thing. In other words, they're in Christ's presence, but not yet with a resurrected body. So there's a lot of debate about this possibility. But you know what? It seems like even Paul isn't exhaustively clear on this point, or he's not allowed to make it crystal clear. And we're supposed to wonder about it. On to verse 4. Verse 4 is one sentence with three parts. Part A, for a while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Part B, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. And part C, so that, this is the reason when he says so that, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, after reiterating in the first part of verse 4 what he said back in verse 2 about groaning and being burdened in this life, Paul then emphasizes in the middle of verse 4, 4b, what I mentioned just a minute ago, the desire to be fully or further clothed with his future immortal resurrection body. And in the last part of verse 4, he gives more information about what this desire for the consummation of the Christian's hope is. He says, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So look back at verse 1. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Something very interesting here grammatically is that the we have is in the present tense. Why is that important? Because it means that through Christ, this new body is as surely ours now as if it had already come into our experience. That's what he's trying to get across. There couldn't be anything more certain or sure than this. One commentator writes, the real hope of the Christian is not in the temporary separation of body and soul at death, but the glorious resurrection that lies beyond it. The whole of our created being, body and soul, together is meant to share in the redemption achieved by Christ for us. That's our real hope. If I took a vote right now, I would even have to raise my hand halfway. I forget about this all the time. It is comforting to know that a loved one is in the presence of the Lord. At peace. The whole thing. Right? 
but the real hope, death tore apart body and soul. The real hope was when God puts that back together with the super turbocharged resurrection body that will be lasting always. Not to the end of time. There is no end to this time. That's our glorious hope. And lastly, in verse 5, Paul even writes that God has given us a guarantee. Finally, one we can depend on. A guaranteed for all this happening. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the work that the Holy Spirit does now inside of us is a pledge for the fuller life of the resurrection to come. In other words, this is a down payment. God prepares us in this life now for being swallowed up by life everlasting. That's what we're doing here, folks. In this sentence, the word for God is emphasized grammatically. I tried to emphasize it. My voice, I think, cracked instead. Did you hear that? In verse 5, God is placed in an emphatic position. Because Paul wants to make it absolutely clear. Both that, that both the glorious ultimate destiny for believers and their present possession of the Spirit are the works of God and not from human devising or human beings making it happen. And this is one of the clearest places in the New Testament that emphasizes that point. Perhaps we need to hear from John 10, 35 here. Scripture cannot be broken, quote unquote. One last thought of application. Much of our pain, our frustration, our doubt, our fear, our despair, our anger is rooted in an attitude that when all is said and done is not really aligned with and thankful for God's plan of redemption. We easily get off track. I do. You do. And we veer off into practically living moment by moment and really contradiction to what we profess to believe about Christ. And we know this in our hearts, which is why we cry out to him for forgiveness that he has already bought. And we do that in responding to our circumstances there's a general way to, to describe this. We respond to our circumstances by demanding in our hearts that God needs to do what we think we should do without really humbling ourselves before him. And this means that we won't be able to see anything of what he's working in, in, in us and around us if we've got that attitude. There's a reason why we think where is God. And it's probably because we want him to do what we want him to do. So much that we can't see what he's actually doing, any of it. And instead, we need to cry out to him for mercy. 
God loves to answer prayers for Moses. I heard one prayed that way already this morning. A prayer for mercy. Even if we don't yet understand any of the whys, and God has given us several people in the Bible as great examples for this, after long periods of time, crying out for why, of demanding why, of getting counselors to answer the question for why. And finally, what happened? Job was still sitting in the dust. He'd lost everything, everyone he'd loved over a long period of time. And he finally found out and realized how great God was. And he just shut up. Finally at peace. Glad to be a child of the king. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we all admit that we veer this direction so fast. Um, we have so many demands. We've turned our dreams into you do this or else and even our hopes. Thank you for putting the brakes on our hearts, that you're so at work in us, that you give us scriptures that speak to this often, and that you've opened our hearts and eyes to see it. We can trust you, O oh God, and yet we fall short of doing that, and yet you bring us to a place where we do. And you give us your peace, and we remember that, and then something else happens. And we don't know your peace. And we cry out, and you supply it again. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us, that you let us experience things, sometimes just so that we remember who you are and what you've saved us for so that we're better prepared to spend eternity with you. Lord, help us to help each other see that our encouragement comes in Christ's person and work, your great gift to us. You've proved your love for us in ways that we can't even hardly explain. And yet, sometimes we take even that for granted. Lord, continue to humble us, to increase our trust so that we may stand, so that the light that's reflected from Christ inside of us would go out to a dark world, that you would supply what we need to bear witness to you and who Jesus is. And then in the meantime, when we feel crushed, when we feel like disappearing, that you would strengthen us with the knowledge of these truths that you would get us back on our feet because we're standing on the rock and not our own something. Thank you that your grace is sufficient and that you used your servant Paul to communicate this so clearly to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? There was really 
Well, I couldn't go anywhere else except Romans 11 after this passage. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You're dismissed.